Welcome in, everyone. Hello, everybody. This is Everything Sucks, Let's Fix It, episode 34. My name is Ben Mayer. My name is Anthony Buono. Today is February 6th, 2024. I'm super pumped for this right now. I'm, I'm excited. Yeah, we I'm got some good. crazy stuff to talk about. Yeah. And one of the first things, so we want to get into the strikes, the retaliatory strikes that the U.S. and Britain made a few days ago against militants in Iraq and Syria, and then more Houthi militants in Yemen. So we're going to start with Iraq and Syria because those came first. Strikes were against Iran's Revolutionary Guard and some militias that it backs, and it killed nearly, I think it killed 26 people in strikes on 85 targets. Mm. Um, it, the So the Iraqi foreign ministry was unhappy with this, even though the U.S. claimed to have communicated with them beforehand, and we talked last week about how the U.S. has been in court, has been coordinating with the Iraqi government to help quell uprising of Islamic militant forces in the country since the fall of ISIS. Um, so that's kind of interesting to me. Well, because it's different types of Islamic extremism, right? Mm -hmm. These groups are Shia-backed militias mm -hmm. or Shia militia groups. ISIS is following a Sunni sect of Islam. Okay. So it's a different type of Islam that Iraq is committed to fighting against okay. with that cooperation with the United States, right? Iraq and the U.S. are committed to fighting ISIS together. Iraq and the U.S. aren't committed to fight, fighting the Shia militia groups together. There's a, I think Iraq is majority Shia. Mm. Um, so they don't, they, they don't necessarily like that. And I, and I, I, I can imagine the Iraqi government is trying to save face a little bit. Yeah. Being like, hey, 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 hey. To all their people, right, in their country saying, we didn't want them to go after these guys. We didn't give them the okay on this. Yeah. Right. And I guess at the end of the day, like, Iraqis still are not going to like seeing that U.S. airstrikes have hit their country. No, no, no. They're right. going to hate seeing their, you know, their territory bombed forever after yeah. what we did to them in 03, and rightfully so. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, well, first, I want to I wanna stick on the Iraqi targets because last episode, or maybe two episodes ago, we were discussing what the U.S. should do in response to the Iran-backed militia attacks against us, mm -hmm. specifically at Tower 22 in northeastern Jordan, right? You know, I said there that the United States had an obligation to respond um, with at least similar force, right? Go mm -hmm. after those Shia militia groups. I didn't want them to go all the way and attack Tehran or attack the island that exports the majority of Iranian oil mm -hmm. or anything like that yeah. or produces the uh, majority of Iranian oil. Um, so they, they go after the specific militia groups. Do you think anything on the ground changes from this? No, not necessarily. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think it was effective deterrence. Like yeah. where we got at the end of our conversations, you have to make some strike you have mm -hmm. to have some response so that deterrence remains a real concept right deterrence won't be possible if you just let everything slide because no one will trust you that you're actually going to follow through on your word yes right wait when, when you're playing the politics of uh talk soft carry a big stick mm -hmm. if you refuse to ever use that big stick people are going to act like it doesn't exist yeah so i think this is effective in like setting what the cost of their actions is yeah but it doesn't it's not too high it's not too low and it shows that if these Iraqi or if these Islamic militias are going to do more, are going to go further with their attacks, mm -hmm. we'll go further too. Oh, yeah. Right? And the fact that we hit the Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps, that's pretty intense. The yeah. fact that Iranian Revolutionary Guard troops were killed, mm -hmm. that, that that's a pretty steep, you know, retaliate, retaliation. Yeah. And to be clear, those that Revolutionary 
Revolutionary Guard Corps is a branch of the state government. Basically, the state's military. Yes. It's like their infantry branch, pretty much. Yeah. So, I... Yeah, I do think it's proportionate, not overboard. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a U.S. lieutenant general did say that it appeared the strikes were successful in taking out military equipment That's as it good. caused like larger secondary explosions after the strikes landed. Uh, so I am also glad that they're they're targeting the actual infrastructure that matters as far as the attacks that the Iranian back groups are carrying. Yeah, out. and I, you brought up a good point last time we talked about destroying munitions, right? I, I'm a big proponent of destroying munitions, but you gave me a good counter argument. I want to repeat, it's like, are we just, you know, boosting Iranians' weapon exports by destroying these hubs? Yeah. And then Iran is going to sell these forces or funnel more money and more weapons to these groups to replace it. Yeah. I don't know how quickly they're able to do all that. I also don't actually know if these, like, militia groups are, like, giving money to Iran. So it might just be a sunk cost. Yeah. No, I, I I think it's the other way around, where Iran is usually supplying these militia groups. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Iran is buying its weapons usually from Russia, China, oh, and the right, like. Right, Um. So as far as we, it probably is depleting Iran's like country's reserves, right? To some extent, yeah, maybe. Even if we are kind of fueling industrial activity within the whole, I don't know, axis block, right? Uh, I, I mean, again, what we came back to in that conversation too was, what else can you do? Right. I, I agree with the move entirely. That was yeah. what you had to do. So then, in Yemen, where the U.S. has already been making strikes on the Houthis. Um, they struck 36 targets this time, killed about 16 people. Uh, it's, it was unrelated to the administration's response to the Jordan attack, according to a senior administration official. But they also said that they would further retaliate based on that Jordan attack. So this strike on Iraq and Syria was just the first part mm-hmm. of their response. More is coming. And they struck Yemen in addition to that, this Yemeni, this is all about you know the Houthi blockade going on in the Suez Canal, right? This is yeah. all about trying to end that blockade and end the Houthis' ability of continuing to uh, support that blockade of you know taking out ships as they go through the Red Sea. Definitely. And this one in Iraq and Syria, I've only I'm sorry, in and the bombings in Iraq and Syria, right, were only done by the U.S. and the U.K. As far as I'm aware, this one was a much broader operation with the support of much more countries. It had. I don't. I don't know if that's true. No. So I. I think it was supported like verbally okay. or in in theory by these other countries. Okay. Not not in theory. Like I think they actually their State Department said it or something like yes. that. Yes. But their U.S. and British forces. Yeah. Okay. Only U.S. and British forces acted yeah, as yeah, far yeah. as making the strikes. So it has U.S. British forces supported by Austria, Bahrain, Australia, Australia, Bahrain, Denmark, Canada, Netherlands, and New Zealand. Yes. I like seeing that larger coalition of nations supporting it. Yeah. Um. Obviously, it's a lot of the Anglosphere with Canada, New Zealand, Australia being there. But, mm-hmm. you know, Denmark and Netherlands, I, I, I'm glad that other nations are backing this. Mm-hmm. And it's not just a U.S., you know, single um, yeah, loan exp- exploration. Definitely. You know? Yeah. Um, it is interesting because the U.S. and Britain were the ones who were kind of alone in their mission or the, the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah. Uh, so it do- it is kind of, I don't know, I think it does still breed some skepticism or at least curiosity from my part. Why are other militaries not involved in this, right? Like why I, maybe it's because it's still easier to let the U S take the brunt of being the big West bad. Yeah. Um, but it, it isn't, I don't know. It's not great for us. Maybe it also doesn't matter. Maybe even if all these countries did 
support us and join us in making the military strikes, uh, the resistance within these countries, the radicalization that happens against the the West is still going to be centered on the U.S. because that idea is baked in enough by now. I do think there is something to the point of like these European nations are kind of hooked on the drug that is American national security, mm. right? They they it's like they are so reliant on us yeah. to police their waters, to secure their borders, to protect them from Russia. They are so reliant on that. Mm-hmm. I actually don't even I'm, I don't even buy that they could totally operate this type of of warfare right now. I don't, I don't either. Buy it. I don't either. And it does bring up an interesting conversation, which I was thinking about before this, where these European allies that we have are way more dependent on peace in the Middle East and allowing the trade to oh, flow yeah. through there that does than we are. Like we can honestly operate pretty well, if not entirely unscathed without it. 12% of global trade goes to the Suez Canal, but the Suez Canal barely even touches the radar of U.S. imports. Exactly. And especially because of how strong our trade agreements are with Canada, Mexico, um, and even our our trade partners in the Pacific, including China, can come across the Pacific, right? Yeah. Um, we, it's not that big of a deal for us. And what's so, so funny about it is now China is one of the countries who's hurt the most. Yeah. Right? So now China has to be in this weird position with Iran, who's technically their ally. Mm-hmm. And China has to be like, Iran, you have to get your the Houthis under control. And there, mm-hmm. are, there are talks going on that we've I read about recently about how China is trying to mull Iran over there. Yep. But then it's like, then there's other conversations involved. Should China be the one? with the largest navy in the world, quote-unquote, yeah. be the one policing the Red Sea and not the U.S. because it's their biggest issue to deal with. It's their ally that they have to whip into shape. But then, from the U.S. perspective, do we want to give the Chinese navy that experience? Exactly. Yeah, not only that experience, that responsibility yeah. with it. Like, this is the international order that we created. Mm-hmm. This The U.S. patrolling the seas of the world and enforcing the freedom of navigation that's existed since World War II to in kind of the most prosperous time of globalization that we've ever seen. Um, that's given us enormous power, yeah, enormous clout. Uh, if we if we let China take that role, are we suddenly sharing over some of that clout? But on the other hand, are we spending money? Are we spending more money and attention and manpower on this problem Mm -hmm. than we should be if it's not directly benefiting us. That's kind of a populist angle to look at this from. But I think it is an interesting and important question because someone else likely will try to pick up our mantle if we drop it, which does beg the question of whether we're just putting stuff in as a waste right now. Yeah. Or what if no one picks up the mantle? Yeah. Right? Then, but then, is that scarier? Is it scarier to live in a world where we don't have freedom of navigation, mm. but the U.S. gets to spend less on its military and more on social welfare? Well, I mean, the truth is, I think the U.S. would be f- the U.S. would, would come out be fine. as the winner of a deglobalized world. Yeah, for because sure. Because of what we have in the Western Hemisphere, the safety that we have, uh, the removal geographically from all these other powers, uh, we're right now we really are mostly doing this for all of our European friends. Yeah. Um, and we talk about how the U.S. is growing so fast, right? We have the best performing economy in mm-hmm. peer nations. Um, that's actually not a good thing. Like, I'm glad that we're at the top. Mm. But the fact that our peer nations, which are also our allies, mm. are that much below us, okay. that's a danger. It's a danger when Germany is shrinking by 0.3% over a year. Mm. It's a danger when the U.K. 
keep struggling with inflation and can't get up to reasonable GDP growth. It's a struggle when Italy has pension crises. It's great to see that we're on the top of the spreadsheet of international of the international order, but it sucks when we realize those are our allies that we're relying on and paying to prop up with our arms. Well, so I'm curious, what is it a danger to? Is it a danger of like like specifically? Are we thinking a Russian invasion of the European continent? That's one way it's a danger. It's another okay. danger that maybe the European continent won't have as much money necessary to you know invest in climate change the way they should mm. that's another area to look at it yeah that's true right okay the yeah the problems the global problems that we face kind of yeah um cool do you have more on this no nope. because i that you saying that it makes it harder for europe to invest in climate change proposals makes me think of a an article that i read today it's mm -hmm. not on our sheet okay. but it's a conflict that's happening in europe about solar manufacturing let's at least start there and how European solar manufacturers are being completely outcompeted by Chinese imports. Yeah. Um, Europe added 40% more solar capacity in 2023 mm. than it did in 2022. So it is rising exponentially. There are estimates that say that 95% of that technology for the solar installations came from China. We know this. We've done our deep dives into climate change and on the transition to renewables and to renewables. And China dominates the supply chain for solar and wind, honestly. But the question is now coming in, like Europe is considering these protectionist policies yeah. so that they can uh, they'll put they're thinking about tariffs on Chinese imports of solar and wind technology so that European solar and wind manufacturers can survive. On the other hand, that's going to slow down the transition to renewables. Uh, the German the German finance minister, Robert Habeck, I think his name is, mm -hmm. uh, specifically commented on rumors that the EU was considering Chinese tariffs. And he said, I want to caution against that because it will slow down our transition enormously. Yeah. And that, that guy, is a, he's an FDP member. Okay. He's a, so that means he's a liberal neoliberal. Okay. So he's going to be anti-tariff philosophically. Definitely. Right. Okay, that makes sense. Um, so I'm just wondering, I we've we've talked about this before. Uh, where are you landing on it now? Hmm. I think the United... So let, let's... Okay, I'm going to answer your question with a little bit of U.S. context, right? What was the Inflation Reduction Act? Yeah. On a larger level, the Inflation Reduction Act was a bunch of protectionist policies, mm. right? It was tax credits but only for U.S. goods, mm -hmm. right, to spur U.S. manufacturing in the energy space. Yeah. Um, and that hurts Europe. That hurts China. Yeah. Because now all of these U.S. consumers are now buying from U.S. companies. As an American, I support that. I like that specifically because these goods are so important for national security's sake. Um, now go over to Europe. Do I think Europe Europe should have its own Inflation Reduction Act okay. equivalent? So you do support tariffs, but more or less. I don't for know Europe. if tariffs is. I don't. I I don't know enough to say do tariffs and tax credits actually end up doing the same thing. Okay. I don't know if tariffs and tax credits both end up putting more money into the fight for climate change, right? Because think about mm. this: tax credits are giving money to people. For them to spend on green energy, right? Sure. Tariffs is keeping mm. the price of the home one the same and then making the price of the foreign one go up. So it's actually not making it easier for the consumer to switch. It's only making it more more costly. 
Okay. So, so basically the difference between, so the U.S. tax credit model is not make it harder to buy from China. It's make it easier specifically to buy from the U.S. Yes. Versus tariffs are not make it easier to buy from Europe, but they are make it harder to buy from China. Yes. Europe are we like, just are we just discussing technicalities? Are we just discussing semantics at this point? I don't think so because of the cost of the consumers. It's it, who's taking on the cost. The United States has determined that the U.S. government will take on the cost okay. to fight climate change. Mm -hmm. Right now in Europe, they're saying that the consumer takes on the cost because okay. they're not doing anything to lower the cost. They're only doing things to you know. They're only doing things to get the international cost or the foreign product cost non non uh, competable with the domestic. Yeah, okay. I think that makes sense. Yeah. Um so it's not it's not going to actively slow what's the US version would not actively slow what our current progress is. It could just take one lane and make it go faster. Yes. Okay. Um yeah, I think I think I agree with that. I I am against the tariffs in yeah, Europe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To be clear, um again, I mean we've talked about this so many times. We are not I'm I'm kind of a climate radical. We are not in a position to slow down our transition to renewables at all. Not even close. Uh, I think we're actually kind of the world should be taking advantage of China trying to uh, dump cheap solar tech onto the market right now. Yeah, they really should. Because we can use that and install all of this infrastructure, and then when we're safer from climate change, we can slap the tariffs on later if yeah. we really need to, and we need to make a domestic industry for our own national security. And China, this is, this is the end here, right? China isn't a long-term threat. They're a short-term threat. Yeah. They're a threat for 10 years. Mm -hmm. They're not a threat for 30. They're yeah. not a threat for 40, right? They're a threat for 10. Mm -hmm. if, we can, if we can get past the 10, we'll be fine. Yeah. I mean, I, this will take us into a whole nother topic, but I was debating whether or not to put more bad China economy news on this. <laughs> I read like three different articles this week that okay. was about that and how they're, again, more of their factories are risking being shut down because... Their prices are deflating, oh, and man. they don't know whether they can afford to bring back like most of their employees. So, China, you're saying China's a ten-year threat. China's threat is already like shrinking, mm -hmm. right? So, yes, yeah. China's threat is already on the downturn. Yeah. Right. Okay. Cool. Cool. Let's go into the good economy news in the United States, mm -hmm. right? So. We got our jobs report, and it was absolutely a blockbuster. Guys. Oh, my God. Yeah. A blockbuster. Um, so the expected annual jo uh, monthly jobs gained in January was supposed to be around 180,000, 188,000, somewhere around there. It ended up being 353,000. Not only was it double the expectation, the months of November and December also got revised upward by more than 100,000 jobs. That means that all told, employers added 3.1 million jobs last year alone, and that is 2.7 million that was initially reported. So with all of the adjustments, we've got up to 3.1 million in the last year. This puts our wow. unemployment rate at 3.7%, the longest running uh, unemployment rate below 4% in like 50 years or something. And I just want to emphasize, as far as like what economists thought about this, they across the board thought this was blockbuster. Economists that were polled by like several different uh, news sources, Reuters, New York Times, none of them estimated jobs growth this high. The top end of the, their estimates were around 300,000. We're looking at 353,000. That's crazy. Crazy. It's absurd. And not only were the jobs added, 
you know, not only do we see record jobs added, we also see wages continue to grow. Over the year, wages have grown 4.5% in Jan uh, 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 annually over January. If we look back in December with the consumer price index, it was 3.4%. So now we see 1.1% wage premiums mm -hmm. over last year. And this is before we even see the CPI data for the month of January. Mm -hmm. I've been talking about this for a couple weeks now, maybe a couple months now, and you're going to see this in a couple in next time we talk probably. The January month is pivotal. Last year, January was our worst month for inflation. Once we get past that and that last month of January dips out of the average and we get our new January number, this could be 3.1. This could be 3.0, you know? So, and we could be seeing 2%, uh, I'm sorry, 1.5% wage growth. And so it's really good news for the American worker too. I mean, yeah. like this isn't this isn't just an economy that's being felt by the rich. Um, from mm -hmm. my perspective, like we actually see wage growth. Yeah, which no, is really cool. No, and data is showing the wage growth is actually accruing higher at the bottom of the income distribution. Yes, which wage is exactly growth. what we want to see. Not for just for those lowest earners who are who need the wage growth the most, who we at least advocate for getting that wage growth mm -hmm. the most, most, but also for the sake of the overall economy, which always benefits the most from having more income at the bottom of the distribution. Absolutely, because the people at the bottom of the distribution are the ones who spend it the most. Yes. And consumption is the biggest driver of our economy. When we look back on 2023 and the economic growth that we saw with the 3.1% number, I think, was mm -hmm. the final number there, it was driven because of Americans' ability to consume. Yes. Because of our ability to buy with the disposable income that we have mm -hmm. in this country that other countries just don't have right now. Yep. And we're unique in that position. And totally. we're lucky for that. Yeah. You know? Um, but then I, I want to go a little into where these jobs were where these jobs were being made, right? So twenty-three thousand manufacturing jobs were added over the course of the year. Okay, we have 23,000 manufacturing jobs, um, construction jobs, we saw 11,000. But mm -hmm. if we drill down really specifically, we see that non-residential specialty trade contractors were 13.7 thousand jobs were created. That non-residential specialty trade contractors, that is where we're building the fabs. That's where we're building the semiconductor plants and the new um, manufacturing facilities coming out of the CHIPS Act and the Inflation Reduction Act. And on the other hand, we see a, I'm, is this right that I'm seeing a loss of 7.7 thousand jobs in heavy and civil engineering construction, which I'm pretty sure is where uh, construction for oil drilling and natural gas extraction happens? Um, yeah. So that might have a positive effect on our climate goals as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So th there's a lot of cool stuff in here. One thing that I don't really like is like our, our, our residential building construction added 2.5 thousand jobs. I look back to the last couple years, like pre-COVID, mm. and it was kind of sitting more at like the three, four, five numbers. The 2.5 is actually kind of relatively low for that, which okay. kind of sucks. But the what's going on right now in America is a manufacturing boom, really, more than anything. Mm. Our construction is heavy around manufacturing. Our manufacturing investment is the largest it's been since like 1970. So that's that's where we're in right now. Yeah. And then the largest job growth, what what and the largest job growth we see is in professional and business services, specifically like IT and technical services, mm -hmm. scientific stuff, professional consulting, 41.9 thousand jobs added in that sector. And then when we look at our private education and health services, that's the largest, 112,000 jobs added in private education and health service. Yes. Wow. So, you know, as America ages, we need more people to take care of them. Definitely, definitely. And generally, 
blockbuster economy. Blockbuster. As we keep on saying, American economy is super strong. Bidenomics. Bidenomics. Killing it. Killing it. All right. We have an update into the long negotiations going on about the border agreement in the Senate. So finally, the Senate border bill that has been worked on by Republican Senator Lankford from Oklahoma, Chris Murphy, Democrat from Connecticut, and Kirsten Sinema from Arizona, Independent, they have been putting together this border deal for months now. And we're going to add it to the military supplement, defense industry supplement, in order to, that was to protect Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan. Mm-hmm. And they're going to add this in so that we have domestic security and international security all in one package. That was the plan. It was actually a package that Republicans originally pushed for, was tying the international aid to the domestic uh, security because we're, they were they were saying why spend so much international security and not spend any on our national security. Yeah, and so the Democrats were coming around and giving them exactly what they were asking. And for. let's go into what were the things that are in this bill. So the first thing is that they're going to speed up the asylum process. So right now the asylum process is like a ten year waiting period. This means people who claim asylum then sit in the United States waiting for their court hearing for like ten years. Right, these people who are just asylum pending. Um, then they're going to cut that 10 years down to six months so that we can cycle through these people way faster, decide whether or not they have the legal right to stay. And we're, we're like funding that process. Right now, we don't have enough judges. We don't have the systems in place. Mm-hmm. And this will create those systems to move these, pro- these uh, claims more rapidly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Now, they also, with these asylum seekers, they want to give them work permits way faster. So this way, asylum seekers won't be as much of a burden on local and municipal governments. Yeah. And they'll be able to work for themselves, um, be able to pay their own rents and be able to buy their own food. They won't be reliant on state and federal aid. Which I feel like this is a good opportunity for us to jump in really quick and kind of push back on the premise that we need such strict immigration control because we've talked about this before at length. But immigration is a good thing. It's a good thing for the economy. Immigrants do not outcompete native-born American workers. Um, they actually just create a larger workforce of people who are generally willing to do the jobs that most native-born Americans don't want to do. They actually create more and better jobs for native-born workers. Immigrants create better jobs for native-born workers because native-born workers are the ones that are going to be moving up into lower and middle management faster Exactly, because there are more inter um, foreign-born workers entering the labor market who are going to be taking the jobs below them. Yes. Yeah, so the, the whole structure of this bill and of the entire immigration debate that has been happening for the past several months in at the federal level of the U.S. government is that immigration is bad mm-hmm. and it needs to be stopped. That is a false premise. Yes. There's very little to no evidence to support that. We did a deep dive on this. We looked into it in our best one. great depth. It's probably our best one. Definitely our best one. Um, really, but we've, we've completely lost the plot. Um, Democrats have totally lost the narrative. Advocates of of immigration. I mean, it's not just Democrats because I do. I think this is a great opportunity. We want to give credit where credit is due to libertarians. Sure, we're yeah, also true. huge advocates of basically open borders, more freedom of immigration. But the media has completely spun this issue so that it is not aligned with what the evidence says at all. And people think immigration is the biggest problem this country has. Funnily enough, some Republicans were sent to the border for like a. Uh, not a convoy, that's not the right word, but uh, it, 
an event to like yeah like the truckers to help stop the migrant wave i saw that yeah right? like they all drove down there in support of you know closing the border and then they get down there and they see there's no problem like <laughs> there's nobody streaming across the border people are calling it a massive grift one because they're getting there and they're like okay this isn't a problem so we've been completely duped by the media that has been blowing this up as the biggest crisis in our country and because literally there are vendors down there like selling t-shirts to celebrate the idea that is so gross isn't that ridiculous if you're making money off like just like watching people who are struggling and suffering crossing over a dangerous river to get in the country yeah and you're selling a t-shirt like are you kidding me it's absurd but we we even went to even knowing this even Mm -hmm. being as pro-immigration as we were we came to the conclusion like we have lost the plot so much that we are willing to pass a piece of legislation that clamps down on the border more so that we can recapture some of the conversation and redirect it towards something that is more amenable to better legal immigration as yeah. a system. Yes. And even as we try even as we try to do that, we're getting pushback, but we'll get to that. Yes. So now that's the first thing, right? Yes. Speed up those asylum claims. Then we're gonna. the government is going to pay for lawyers to help with unaccompanied minors. There's a large portion of the people who come across the border who are unaccompanied minors, like 13 or lower, yeah. okay? These people, when they're 13 or lower, they get a free lawyer from the government. Josh Hawley comes out and he says, this bill pays for lawyers for illegal aliens. If they're under 13, Josh Hawley, yeah. what, do you want this child to testify before the court and be his own def- like defense? Yeah. What are we talking about here, man? Mm. Um, but then this is when it gets almost too radical for me. This is when it gets like too much for me, right? Yeah. This is when it starts getting pushed back from my perspective on the more progressive side. It's that when 5,000 people are found to have crossed in one day, the president will, requ- will be required to funnel asylum claims to the port of entry. This can only be used a limited number of times per the year, and it sunsets in three years. But what this is saying is, if there's 5,000 encounters in one day, the president's going to have some pretty strict authority to funnel immigrants towards ports of entry. Yes. Right? I see. That's a pretty, that's a lot of power to give the executive branch over this. Yeah. And, you know? and if you are doing that, you have to start to think of the other repercussions of what is going to be happening at those ports of entry. Like, what's going to be happening to the trade routes that we currently have with Mexico, who is our biggest trade partner. I mean, like the answer to your question is you make more points of entry, right? That's got to be the point. Like the answer has to be you build more points of entry. And so, if you don't, you're just hurting our economy even more. Yeah. But but that's an issue for me, right? Because then it's like 5,000 people found crossing in a day. We're already at those numbers. So mm-hmm. that, we would already be doing this. Yeah. Funneling people towards the ports of entry. That's fine. I hope everybody comes to the ports of entry. I want it to be easy. Okay. I want there to be a simple app on the phone where they can apply, get in, do their thing, get vetted, make sure that they're clean. When I say clean, I don't mean dirty. I mean like with health wise and everything. And then they come into the country and all good to go. Um, you know, 5,000, probably too low a number for me, but that's fine. I'm, I'm compromising here, all right? Then more visas. This one I really like. There will be 50,000 extra employment and family reunification visas each year for the next five years. Mm. That's really good. The, our current diversity lottery visa is 55,000. So the current only way to get a long-term visa in the United States that isn't H-1B or H-1A um, is through the diversity lottery. This is the only way a non-skilled 
laborer could get in the United States. It's like a one out of 400 or 500 something shot of getting selected. Now we're increasing those numbers. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, path to citizenship for Afghan parolees and children of H-1B holders. That's huge. Yep. Normally, these H-1B holders, so H-1B holders, these are people who come in for work permits, okay? Um, I think in the agricultural sector or more professional industries. No, H-1A is for agriculture. H-1B is for the more skilled industries. Okay. Okay. Um, currently, kids of H-1B visa holders get deported when they become 21. Wow. Yeah. So that's a huge shift. That's a great change. Okay. All right. And then the last one, um, it also includes $20 billion of enhanced border enforcement on the U.S.-Mexico border um, to combat drug trafficking specifically, right? So like really high-tech fentanyl detection screenings and stuff like that. Yeah, which I I might be against, but... I know. Um, so this bill has earned... Uh, wait, we want to say one Well, more? I was just going to say, because I feel like that's, that's kind of... That should go explained just because I don't think the enhanced enforcement mechanisms will actually be effective in preventing fentanyl from coming in just for the sake of the audience. I I also don't think it will either. Yeah. Um, I mean, like this is almost like kind of red meat to try. I feel like this is red meat to get the Republicans on board. But I I could totally be under the circumstances that no, the Border Patrol needs more resources. I can I can maybe subscribe to that belief. Sure. Sure. I mean, I I I agree. I think it's mostly political. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you, too. But. The Border Patrol doesn't agree that it's just political. The Border Patrol Union has actually endorsed the plan. Yep. So the Border Patrol Union is all on board. So what's the issue here, Ben? Well, (laughs) the Republicans have now totally rejected their own deal. Okay? Republicans have come out and they said, we're not voting for it. Mike Johnson said this thing is dead on arrival in the House. We have Now we have Senator Lankford, the guy who wrote the bill won't even vote for the procedural mechanisms to get the debate started. It's insane. The the Oklahoma Republican Party, this is where Senator Lankford is from, has voted to condemn Senator Lankford for working with Democrats in negotiating this package. Absolutely insane. The party of Oklahoma, the Republican Party, this isn't like some fringe, crazy, MAGA Republicans. No, no, no. It's the party of a state has said, Senator Lankford, we're condemning you for working across the aisle. We condemn you for being bipartisan. We condemn you for working with the enemy. God, this just screams fealty to Trump to me. Yes. Right? Like this is, Trump has said that he does not want the border deal to be passed under the pretense that it's not enough, but with the obvious reasoning that it's going to look good for Biden during a re-election year. Well, there's already been Republicans, and we've talked about them. Republicans have come out. They're like, why would we do anything that could help with Joe Biden sinking approval ratings? Yeah. Whoa. Is that what you're using to make calculations about how we're perf- doing government right now? That's what we're talking about? That's what you want to go with? What about all the times Democrat? what if Democrats sank to the CARES Act in March of 2020 and provided no relief because it would have made the economy better and would have helped Trump? Yeah. Right? We, would we have, would Democrats do that in the face of a crisis? No. So it means one of two things, Republicans. Either the border isn't a crisis or you just don't care about the issue at all. It yeah. has to be one or the other. And, and the, important, the important takeaway when we're thinking about voting, right, as we, as people who get somewhat of a say on this, when we're voting this November for the House of Representatives— Right. We need to keep in mind how dysfunctional this Republican Party is, yeah. how they are actively preventing us from making progress. Again, I don't necessarily think that restricting immigration more is a version of progress, but it seems like the majority do. So if you're one of those people, 
note that it is the Republican Party that is preventing that progress. Yes. Okay? There's a clear option on the table here that Democrats have negotiated with Republicans. They've said that they will pass. And now the the Republicans like Mike Johnson in the House are only willing to pass a bill that they push so far that they basically they need to hear from Hakeem Jeffries, the Democratic leader in the House, that he won't support it before they say that they're okay with the bill. So they're just saying they're not okay with any bill that will pass. Yes, that's exactly what they're saying. And yeah. and, and when you talk about the fealty to Trump, it's obvious now. So obvious. Jim Jordan went on Fox News. Jim Jordan is one of the leading Republicans. He's from Ohio, okay? He was on Fox News last night, and he said that there was no reason to pass a bill now. That's what he said. There was no reason to pass a bill. And if people want change, they should go out, go out and vote for Donald Trump in the next election. That's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. We have... I just, I just, it's, it's crazy because I want to map that out, right? People, there's, there's no reason to make the change now. If people want change, they have to go vote for Trump. So it's like the, he's literally saying, "Oh yeah, we could make change, but it's not worth it. It's only worth it if change is made via Trump." Right. So like, how do you, how do you reconcile? How could that possibly make sense? It's just they're, they are so caught up in the battle of of winning and losing of the po- politicking of all of it and you and you just see that democrats are willing to do the thing that actually makes progress and some republicans are more some republicans are on board and they're exasperated with the fact that so many members of their party are falling into this um into this partisan bickering yeah, I mean, they're getting, they're in like this quicksand where they they don't know what they they can't get out. Yeah, they, they are they cannot get out. Mm-mm. We have senators, okay? Senator uh, Barrasso, he's the third most powerful Republican senator in the Senate. Okay, he says I cannot vote for this bill. Americans will turn to the upcoming election to end the border crisis. This election is two hundred and seventy two days away. Senator, if it's a crisis, how can we let it go on for two hundred and seventy two days to wait for it to end? Yeah. If it's a crisis, how are you going to wait for 272 days when you could do something, but instead you're doing nothing? You're not going to take action for a full year on a crisis yeah. because you want your guy to win and you think the country being in a crisis. I don't even agree it's a crisis, but it's their word. Yeah. They are comfortable putting the country in a crisis to get their guy elected. That's for what they nearly think. a year. It is it is um, it just to me and I don't like making extreme like statements on the show because I think generally extremity is incorrect. It just doesn't match up with the facts. But the facts that we're seeing, the literal quotes that we're getting from the Republican congressman is they can't govern. They can't get things done. They aren't willing to actually fix the problems that they identify in the country yes. if it isn't on their own political terms. If that's not a reason to not vote Republican, I don't know what could be. Right. They're not They're not reliable actors. No. They're, they're, they, it, it, it blows my mind. And also, Jim Jordan is wrong, okay? Because this bill would not pass under a Donald Trump administration. Because good luck trying to get 10 Democrats to vote for a Republican-drafted border bill. Good luck trying to get to that. Happen. Ooh, well, if that's the case, then well, we'll, no, but it's a republic. If the Republicans go hard and push for something even more extreme than this, yes, Democrats are not going to vote for it. Well, here's here's the interesting question. Here's where our argument would fall apart, depending mm-hmm. on the answer you give me. Yeah, yeah. If Republicans brought this very same bill, yeah, 
would Democrats pass? It? I can guarantee you there are 10 Democrats in the House right now that would sign this bill. I think so, too. Absolutely. I'm, I think I'm, so. I'm looking at Mark Warner. I'm looking at Kirsten Cinema. I'm looking at Joe Manchin. Uh, there, are, there are Chris Coons from Delaware. There are plenty of Democrats that I could point to. That would would they, and, and would they do it in an election year? Because we have to compare apples to apples. Well, I, I, if I'm looking at something that the Democrat, if I'm looking at something that the Democrats think is a crisis, mm -hmm. okay, I look at the CARES Act in March 2020. Yep. That was in an election year. Yeah. And it propped up and saved the American economy. Totally. So, yeah. So, so either this is a, this, either this is a crisis and we see that there is a substantial, a substantive difference yes. between the parties and how they govern. Yes. Or they're lying about whether it's a crisis. Or it's not even a crisis. Yeah. It's not a crisis, and they're trying to get you scared on purpose yeah. because there's too many brown people, and they don't want their country to be dirty, yeah. and it's poisoning the blood of our country. They need a scapegoat to prop themselves up. It's ridiculous, but even McConnell has come out against it now. So there we go. Now McConnell's going against it. Yeah. So it's totally dead. All of those months, and it just blows my mind because when we look back on this, Obama was trying to do immigration reform in 2013. That was very similar to the immigration reform that Ronald Reagan did back in the 80s. He gave amnesty for people that were currently in the country and then reinforced the border more strictly, okay? Well, Obama proposed doing similar thing to Reagan and had the support of Senator Marco Rubio from Florida. Mm -hmm. Senator Marco Rubio first came into the Senate in 2012. That was his um, freshman term in the Senate. And he came in all bright-eyed, happy to work with Democrats. It was called the, the Gang of Eight was making this uh, immigration deal. Sean Hannity actually comes out for three days after Marco Rubio's speech. Sean Hannity on Fox News is touting this deal. He loves this deal. Mm. He's in favor of this deal. Day four, day five, it's over. Day seven... Marco Rubio comes out against the bill, writes an op-ed in the Washington Post against the bill he helped write. Wow. So this isn't a new story. Okay, Democrats, you got played. Senator Schultz, I think, Schertz, whatever, it's the senator from Hawaii, okay? He came out, he, he was talking online and he was saying, Demo Republicans, blah, 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 I can't believe they would do this to us. I believe it. Are you living under a rock? They did it to you 10 years ago. Yeah. Why would you be surprised they did it to you now? They've already done this to you. You're getting played again. Mm. So it is what it is. I just, God, I, I hope that people see this story for what it is. To me, this is one of those things which like, because I think I'm usually prevented from like having super strong opinions on either side because there's always a reasonable argument on the other side. But this is so clear as, as far as how it's playing out, as far as the politicking of it all and how they're preventing progress just for the sake of trying to elect their guy. It, it <laughs> boggles the mind. No, it's just disgusting. So now this brings in the new angle, right? So this was supposed to be a border and international security deal, a national security and an international security deal. Well, we still have to pass some international aid here. Mm. Israel's at war, whether you agree or not. Unfortunately, the Congress is in full support of Israel, which I do not agree with. Then we have the war in Ukraine and we have China's uh, possible invasion of Taiwan. Mm. All these three nations, uh, maybe not, well, Israel doesn't, but those two nations need weapons to continue their war. So Mike Johnson is pushing a, uh, a, a non-tied uh, package, okay, a separate Israel aid package that is separate from Ukraine, Ukraine, separate from Taiwan. And this is because the Republican base, for some reason, turned against Ukraine, which I, I almost don't even know when that happened, and then uh, don't support Taiwan for another reason. That I, I honestly don't even know why they don't support Taiwan. But I, I think it's America first taking but like over. Not, but then why give money to Israel? 
if you're America first. I don't get it. Israel aligns with the evangelical yes, ideals. It does. Whereas the others don't. That makes sense. That can make sense. But so now House Republicans are pushing for a standalone Israel funding bill. That'll be about $17 billion in military aid. Okay. Um, this again, this comes as the Senate proposes its own defense supplement, which includes an overhaul of the asylum claim, as we talked about, and the immigration system. And in the Senate bill, with this defense, we have Ukraine aid, Taiwan aid, in addition to the Israeli aid, okay? Biden has come out and he said that he will absolutely veto a standalone Israel defense funding bill, which I give him credit for. I give him credit for that. That is not an easy thing to do in Washington. True. It is not easy to veto an Israel funding bill. Israel is one of some of the power, most powerful lobbyists in the world. Um, whether you like it or not, that is what it is. They have a lot of influence over our elected officials, some of it rightfully. Some of what Israel goes through and the attacks they face from Hamas rightfully deserve action and they have the right to defend themselves. Others, it doesn't. Um, but I also want to give credit here because Biden is being harder on Israel than any other modern president. Is he? Yes, and this is why. Okay. I'm going to go into it. Okay. Um, so, but I want to close on that first part there. So I, I want to close on what is the fate of Israel aid? Like, I, I want to close on that conversation first. Okay. So do we think that Mike Johnson caves and does the Ukraine-Taiwan-Israel um, bill? of Israel? Yeah. Or does he just do flat Israel and if gets nothing, then they get nothing? I think he does flat Israel and then watches the Democrats uh, not pass it and then eviscerates them for it. God, that sucks. Yeah. It sucks. Yeah. It does suck because because, first of all, again, like you said— Israel is the country that needs the aid the least Yes. out of the three that we're talking about. Yes. Um, in fact, I would argue Israel doesn't need any more aid from us, that we shouldn't give any more aid to Israel. Yep. Um, and so from at least from that perspective, it makes, ab it, it makes absolutely no sense um, for us not for us to pass that bill without Ukraine and Taiwan aid. Um, and I would just hope that enough American people understand that Israel doesn't need any more of our military support, that they've already been absolutely destroying a country in the Gaza Strip and killing tens of thousands of people, uh, basically indiscriminately, so that, so I hope they understand that we don't need to give any more money to Israel. If you, if you are an America first type of person, if that's how you think, then sending $17 billion to that country with really no particular goal in mind. No, like, yeah. They're not defending themselves. They're just destroying another people right now. I, I don't know how you really kind of like reconcile that. In yeah. Your well, head. I also, I don't like f viewing this money as Israel aid, Ukraine aid, Taiwan mm. aid. It's actually just a reinvestment in the most basic parts of our arms manufacturing at home. Mm. It's really just saying, okay, we need to up the amount of artillery shells we make every year. Sure. Okay, we need to up the amount of guns we produce and bullets we produce. Mm. That isn't really aid to Ukraine. It's just a funneling of money into our defense industry. Again, you can agree with it or not, but to call it Ukraine aid, it's kind of bullshit. Mm. It's kind of bullshit. We're really just investing in our home industries. And look, as someone who's not, a, I'm not a big supporter of the military industrial complex, believe me, okay? But when we look at China and their ability to produce artillery rounds and Russia's ability to produce artillery rounds, okay? Well, maybe not Russia's anymore, but China's for sure. America doesn't have that same capacity. 
we don't have the same capacity to produce mm. artillery rounds that we used to have. Mm. We just don't. We don't produce as many rounds a day. Even if we like, even if we upscaled our capacity to the max of what we currently have with our infrastructure, we can't even get to what we were doing in the 50s. Mm. You know? So if there's going to be a Cold War with China, you want to do that, China. You want to defend Taiwan. You have to invest in defense infrastructure. Because like it or not, the U.S., is the leading defender of liberal democracy in the world. Yeah. That's what we see in Ukraine. That's what we see in Taiwan. That's what some people see in Israel. I don't see it in Israel, but some people do. I mean, that's what you see just in, in what we are to NATO. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. It's clear that we we have to be the suppliers. Um, and yeah, so I even like even just for the sake of deterrence, right? You mm -hmm. hope that these don't have to be used. You hope that China doesn't make any warlike actions towards Taiwan. You hope that Russia never goes further than Ukraine. But they, but part of what's going to make them not go any further is knowing that we have a massive stockpile of artillery waiting for them if they do. Yeah, and so this Ukraine aid does, it gives us that capacity. So again, I hate framing it as Ukraine aid, but mm. it is what the lexicon is. So yeah. I, the Senate is going to pass a bill that has no border in it. It's just going to be Ukraine, Taiwan, Israel, okay? That's what it's going to be. And then we'll it'll go to the House, and then we'll see what happens. Yeah. I, um... I mean, we'll just have to wait and see. I don't think it'll pass. I hope it does. Probably won't. No. Because then Ukraine is fucked. <sighs> yeah. All right. Totally. Biden has been harder on Israel than any other modern president. Okay. Since, so since, what are we talking, since W. Bush? Going further back? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Since like the 60s. Well, I guess, okay. I guess since the 60s. Makes sense, right? Because there's never been another time to be that hard on Israel. No. Right? No, like oh, f when when they were fighting, when when Israel was fighting Hamas in the early 2000s, we yeah. were all on board. Mid-2000s, all on board. 2010s throughout Obama, pretty much all on board. Yeah. Israel yeah. hasn't really, hasn't turned into so much the bad guy no. until now. No, like the 1967 war, I think that was the year of the Suez crisis. Maybe that was 1953. But one of those wars, the U.S. was just directly opposed to the Israeli interest. I think that was 53, actually. Okay. Anyway, point is, President Biden has made a move that I am so supportive of, it's not even funny. Me too. On Thursday, he issued an executive order that targets Israeli settlers in the West Bank. And these Israeli settlers have been accused of attacking Palestinians and Israeli peace activists in the occupied territory. He has imposed financial sanctions and visa bans um, in an initial round against four Israeli settler individuals. Mm -hmm. This is the first time that uh, Israeli citizen has been sanctioned by the United States. Yeah, and these sanctions are hardcore. These, yeah. these completely lock these people out of the basically the American-backed financial system. Yeah, when we say financial also, sanctions, bro, like not access to U.S. banks. Yeah, no, and it and it it places incentives for the institutions specifically not to do business with the individuals. There it so is. the institutions themselves are looking out to make sure that they don't get caught up in any of this. Yeah, so now they're going now institutions are going to be like, "Oh wait, the Biden administration might sanction Israeli settlers. I don't want to do business with Israeli settlers anymore." Yeah. And that's the precedent you want to set. Exactly. Cuz you don't want to do business with Israeli Zionist extremist settlers going into the West Bank that are displacing Palestinian civilians. And of course, honestly, this is this is meant as a a, a an avenue for the Biden administration to take to put pressure on Israel in some place, even if it's not directly related to their war with Hamas in Gaza, to show 
show, honestly, to show not only Israel, but voters here at home, that they're not entirely on board yeah. with Israel, right? That we are going to push back, that we're going to respond when they do bad things. Yeah. And this comes when settler violence in the West Bank against against Palestinians by Israelis is at an all-time high. Yeah. Since October 7th, Israel, uh, Israeli settler violence has been intense in the West Bank. There's been lynchings, killings, car carjackings, car bombings, a lot of terrible things. And so Biden calls this out directly. He says, violence by extremist settlers, in quotes. I don't, I've never heard a uh, president used this language before. Mm. Uh, maybe Obama did. I don't know. But amounted to pouring gasoline on the already burning fires in the Middle East. It has to stop now. They have to be held accountable. It has to stop now. That is some very, very intense language. Yeah. He's imposed travel bans on extremist Jewish settlers implicated in rash and recent attacks against Palestinians in the occupied West Bank. Um, again, this is just really, really good stuff by the Biden administration. It seems good to me that he's taking a stand against the most disgusting part of Israel's current government. Yeah, definitely. Right? Like, like if one of the things that is the most ab like abhorrent and most on like you cannot apologize for this type of behavior yes. is the way that they are slowly taking the land away from the Palestinians who live in the West Bank and making it impossible to form a cohesive state out of the West Bank. Yeah, and I, I like how this operates as a rebuke of the furthest right part of Netanyahu's coalition yeah. right now, right? Because that's what they really need. So the decision is in from the U.S. appeals court. Trump does not have presidential immunity against Jack Smith's charges against him for his role in attempting to defraud the people of the United States with his actions on and around January 6th. So this Jack Smith case is directly related to Trump's whole conspiracy to defraud the people of the United States by having fake electors, by trying to convince Mike Pence to throw out their election results and install him as president through the House of Representatives by ins uh, by inciting that insurrection on January 6th. All of that, those charges, he is not immune from, okay? Trump argued that presidents must have immunity for all official acts that he takes while he's in office. Um, well, unfortunately for him, uh, an attempt to use fraudulent means to thwart the transfer of power should not be considered an official act. Uh, unfortunately for him, you're not allowed to coup the government peacefully, or not even peacefully in this case, and get away with it. Mm -hmm. So very happy about this. Mm -hmm. um, this is a quote from the decision. Oh, by the way, this decision was unanimous. Um, I believe that one of the people in this U.S. Court of Appeals was appointed by a Republican. I don't okay. remember which one. Um, I, I believe that's the case. But anyway, unanimous decision. It was a 57-page um, opinion, and I'll talk about why that's important in a second, because it took them a long time to write this. Why did it take so long? We'll get to that. So he says that the, the, the opinion says this, for the purpose of this criminal case, former President Trump has become citizen Trump with all the defenses of any other criminal defendant. But any executive immunity that may have protected him while he served as president no longer protects him against this prosecution. It would be a striking paradox if the president who alone is vested with the constitutional duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed were the sole officer capable of defying those laws with impunity. Beautifully said. I do. Yeah. I Beautifully like that said. Beautifully said. So the court has given Trump until February 12th to appeal before um before the lower court, okay? So 
until February 12th, he can appeal. If he doesn't appeal by February 12th, it goes back to Chutkin and goes back and the trial can start again. He's going to appeal. But he's going to appeal. President Trump, this is his defense. This is his defense attorney saying, President Trump respectfully disagrees with the D.C. Circuit's decision and will appeal it to safeguard the presidency and the Constitution. Jack Smith obviously wants these appeals to be decided as fast as possible to speed up the timeline for the trial. Um, the original March trial date has already been delayed. It was supposed to be like March 6th or something like that. But that is delayed indefinitely until the immunity appeals are all cleared up. Yeah. But now, why did the U.S. Court of Appeals take so long to write this opinion? Well, here's my thinking process, okay? They are making the case as strong as they can to the Supreme Court to give the Supreme Court almost no hand in the matter. Like The U.S. Court of Appeals here has given them the most laid out, obvious case for why Trump does not have immunity. Mm. They are trying to make it so it is very, very hard for the justices to even hear the case, Yeah, let alone make a decision on it, right? Okay. They're trying to, because you need four justices to agree to hear a case, mm. okay? So three or not, Kagan, Sotomayor, and Katanji um, uh, Brown-Jackson are not going to want to hear this case mm. at all. They're just going to throw it out because they're going to see the decision by the U.S. Court of Appeals and be like, this has already been settled. There's nothing else to talk about here. Okay. Then you have, on the other hand, you have Alito and you have Thomas, okay? These guys, they're going to hear the case no matter what the U.S. Court of Appeals says, okay? Then in the middle here, you have Kavanaugh, Barrett, and uh, John Roberts. Alito and Clarence, oh, and Gorsuch. They, uh, Alito and Clarence Thomas need to pull two of those. I don't know if they can. I think they can pull Gorsuch. Okay. But I think Trump, Name and Kavanaugh and Coney Barrett, I think it's gonna he's going to come to rue the day of that. I don't think they're actually going to sign on to hearing this case. No. And I think that that totally nullifies any fear that they have about making decisions about this. Okay. Because it's like, it is making a decision, but also it's not. It's almost like saying this isn't even our realm to talk about. Like, it's already been settled. We're done. Yeah. And then, I mean, that's more important than them taking the case and then ruling just like this, that Trump doesn't have immunity. Yeah. Because time is of the essence. Right. And time is of the essence. So yeah. then it becomes a question of, will the U.S. Supreme Court sit on it? That I don't know. I think I can make the calculation in my brain that it's not likely they hear the case, mm. but I cannot think of a scenario where they don't at least delay it. Mm. I think they will delay it. Okay. But I hope they don't. I hope they don't delay it. They shouldn't delay it. No. It's bad for democracy if they delay it one way or another. If you think Trump should be on the ballot or shouldn't be on the ballot, we should know if Trump is going to be on the ballot in a couple months. We should know yes. by September, right? Definitely. So now we move to the other legal troubles, some of the other legal troubles that Trump is having. This Thursday, February 8th, the Supreme Court is going to hear the case of whether Donald Trump is eligible to even be on ballots based on his qualification under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Big. So, so this comes out of Colorado, where the state Supreme Court decided that Trump was ineligible to be on the ballot in the Republican primary because they said he had incited insurrection. And according to the 14th Amendment, that meant he wasn't allowed to be president. Um so Trump, of course, appealed that to the Supreme Court. They're hearing arguments on Thursday. And the arguments themselves seem extremely weak. The main argument is that the president of the United States is an office that isn't covered by the amendment. It says senators, representatives, officers of the United States. And they're arguing that president is not one of those officers. So you can get into the, the technicality of the language, but 
when it comes down to it, like you're trying to make the argument that this amendment was written thinking that every office of the United States besides the highest one should be barred from serving in the government if they incite insurrection. Why? How could that make any sense? I, I can't wrap my head around it. Well, we, you talked to me about, and you gave me a great historical example of actually the arguments on the floor of the House of Representatives, or with, maybe the Senate, I don't remember what you were telling me, but of these two congressmen talking about it, and they were like, wait a second, I'm sorry, why did you not include the president? And the guy's response who wrote it was like, anyone who reads this is going to know the president's included, and it's not even going to be relevant. Exactly. It's not going to be relevant. And so there, this is barely even an argument at all, and yet there's still enormous questions about how this case is going to go. I would say most people think Trump is going to be acquitted. They think Trump is going to be allowed on the ballot. And the context here is the court worrying about hurting its own integrity because by removing a contender from the democratic process, right? This makes some sense. In the end, this is going to be a quote-unquote anti-democratic decision. It depends what you mean by democratic, to be honest, because— is it democratic to vote for a demagogue? Well, it's going to be pro-rule of law. Yes. Right? It would be pro-rule of law to keep yeah. him off the ballot. But as far as democracy, meaning people have choice yes. in who leads them, it's going to reduce the people's choice. However, to me, and, and part of this also comes from PTSD that the court has after Bush v. Gore, where the court decided that Florida had to stop counting votes in the 2000 election, which essentially gave the election to George Bush. Um, they that hurt the court's integrity enormously, made them look super partisan. Uh, and the court is worried that if they boot Trump off the ballot, then it'll be the same thing. But in my mind, their integrity is going to be more hurt if they keep Trump on the ballot. I agree. At least if anyone, like, and that's why I'm hoping we get enough people to actually understand what the arguments in this case are. I hope people understand the technicality. I'm really concerned that most people, if they rule against Trump, are just going to see Supreme Court meet, Supreme Court makes one person, ma- makes leading Republican candidate removed from the ballot. Yeah, and that's right? just a nightmare of a headline because yeah. it's so misleading. Mm-hmm. Th- there are no arguments that Trump's own defense could actually come up with yeah. that are plausible to keep him on the ballot because there's really no way about it. Um, exactly. No, the thing is that the Colorado Supreme Court got it right in keeping Trump off the ballot. And the only considerations that there are to keep him on the ballot are political. Yeah, there are no law-related questions about this. This isn't lawfare, because lawfare, I hear this all the time from Republicans, lawfare is when you use the law and skirt around it mm-hmm. to go after your political enemies. So far, there's been like no evidence that it's being used or we're skirting around the law to go after political enemies. It seems like we're just following the law and it just so happens that the guy that you love so much is a fucking criminal, insurrectionist. Yeah. I don't know what to tell you. He broke the law. Like, that's the issue. And so the we know this because you also know, like, the, the consensus of uh, legal professionals and legal experts is that Trump violated the 14th Amendment, yeah. is that it applies to him, is... No, of course that the 14th Amendment does apply to the president, and of course it makes no sense that it wouldn't, right? So to me, I'm just hoping we can uh, project that message far enough because this this case is happening in two days. They're definitely already thinking, the justices are definitely already thinking about how they're going to rule on it, mm-hmm. and I, 
I'm concerned about them making the political calculation. Yeah. And the only way that we can protect against that is by trying to circulate this message enough that hopefully we need to try to shift the politics towards more like, oh, no, it's it actually means the court has less integrity if they leave him on the ballot, yes. not the other way around. I absolutely agree. Yeah. We'll see. I still doubt it will happen. People are in their in their bubbles and they don't like going out of their way to learn what's actually going on. So Shocking. Yeah. All right. We'll catch you up on next time when we're about that topic. Yep. Um, now let's switch to international news for a bit. We got some international economic news. So we talked a lot about the Argentina election when it was happening. Javier Malay and the libertarian revolt that was going on in South America. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um Quick recap, Argentina is going through a massive inflationary spiral. Their inflation rates when Javier Malay was elected was, I believe, 150% year over year. Um, Massive economic uh, downturn. We had declining food exports because of troubles with the international market. Terrible fiscal deficits. Just a lot of issues coming out of Argentina's economy. So Javier Malay ran on this message of, I'm going to uproot everything. Mm. I'm going to rip up the public sector. I'm going to destroy. I'm going to you know take away the public sector employees. I'm going to sell off public assets for privatization. I'm going to destroy the Argentina peso and replace it with the dollar. I'm going to do these crazy tax cuts. I'm going to do all this stuff. I'm going to get our you know our books balanced. Okay. So he proposed 300 articles. Um, to the legislature. This includes economic reforms, administrative reforms, criminal reforms, and environmental changes. He's a big anti-climate changer. He doesn't believe in climate change at all. So that's another aspect of which he comes here. So the it has this 300 omnibus package of articles has made it through the lower house of the Argentina government, our equivalent of the House of Representatives. Okay, these lawmakers approved Malay's initiative, 144 votes in favor and 109 against. This is impressive for Javier Malay. So Javier Malay's Freedom Advances Party is only the third strongest party in Congress, and it lacks the se- the seats to impose his legislative legislative agenda alone. So he's combining his votes with a part of the center-right party um, that Javier Malay ran against for the presidency, but he's working with them to get this 300-page package through. This doesn't mean that the 300 pages passed. It just passed the first procedural hurdle to start being worked on. So now there's going to be amendments and stuff. See, so even some lawmakers who even voted for it have expressed reservations about articles relating to privatization of state companies and the de- the delegation of legislative powers over to the president. Okay. Yeah, so this is like the first hurdle. But the point is, the center right and the far right in Argentina are working together to get these things through. Now, um, we have to see if Javier Malay's intense right-wing economic uh, policies turn into hard right-wing cultural policies we have to see i don't know the answer to that question i hope not i hope not um but that's where we're leading right now mm-hmm. okay so critics of the bill um have said the government will use this bill to increase the exploitation of natural resources if they're going against climate change that makes sense to me mm-hmm. benefit the private sector if they're selling off public assets that makes sense to me and cut the resources for environment and culture that makes sense he already depleted and destroyed departments related to culture and art in the Argentina government and is going against all bunch of climate initiatives for sure. Okay, so opposition deputy uh, Leandro Santoro pointed out that the economic and social crisis of 2001 is a perfect example of the danger of market reforms that Javier Malay is doing now. And so I kind of was like, okay, I 
don't know enough about Argentina economics, what was the social crisis of 2001. So apparently Argentina went through a, neo a neoliberal era in 1990 to 2002. And in, in this reform process, one of the main things they set up was actually a currency board. And on this currency board, the peso was fixed by law at par with the dollar. It's almost mm. a proto-dollarization, but okay. it's, it's not a full dollarization because the country keeps its authority to switch off the dollar if it wants, right? Okay. Okay, because it has that peso in circulation. Sure. And the money supply was deeply restricted um, uh, to level um, the hard currency reserves there. Okay, so basically that's what Javier Malay is doing now. Javier Malay cut the um, value of the peso in half entirely, right? So uh, inflation doubles immediately because of that. Mm -hmm. And so now this we're kind of dealing with that, with the risk of devaluation removed in this neoliberal era, because now the money supply was tied to the dollar, capital was pouring in from abroad. Okay. So now a bunch of foreign countries in this neoliberal era said, oh man, your dollar, your peso is as stable as the dollar. Boom, we're sending money to you. We're pouring a bunch of money into you. So some poor provinces had depended on state enterprises or inefficient industries such as sugar, which could not compete on international trade. And that's one of the other aspects of this neoliberal era. Okay. Argentina was opened up to the international markets. And because that was the case, Argentina sugar could not compete with the international sugar that was pouring in to Argentina. This is interesting because okay. this can talk about our tariff conversation. Yeah, yeah. So now we have a problem because low prices of agricultural commodities made the system in all of these local provinces way worse, yeah. which is exactly what we saw in the last year. We just saw that in Argentina. We saw the collapse of food exports result in the devaluation of the dollar too, mm. in, pay, in uh, the devaluation of the peso. That's one of the main causes or one of the causes. Yeah. So... In 2004, um, a report by an IMF independent evaluation office um, actually criticized the way the IMF helped run Argentina prior to the 2001 collapse. And the IMF came around and said that the support of the country's fixed exchange rates for too long was a mistake and that it was too lenient uh, towards fiscal deficits. Interesting. So the IMF was like, okay, maybe the fixed exchange rate for your currency was actually a total mistake. And now it seems like Javier Malay is going and trying to do the same thing again. Huh. Um, I'm not. I'm no expert. All right. I'm sure there are way smarter people than me who have looked into this and reading about this. Honestly, I barely understand it. Right. Yeah. So, but the point is, IMF is like neoliberal era. Eh, it wasn't that great. Mm. And now it seems like uh, Javier Malay is trying to reverse itself back in to the neoliberal era. Okay. Mm. And this week, the IMF actually slashed. Um, Argentina's GDP 2024 forecasts to a contraction of 2.8% when it was previously a 2.8% expansion. Wow. Following Malay's economic plan. That is a crazy shift. Now, listen, Javier's plan is there is going to be pain short term. Yes. He's been open about that. He's been honest about that. Mm -hmm. He's been advertising that. He's like, I'm going to make you poorer in the next year, but in the next decade, we're going to be rich. That's what he's been saying. Yeah. So he's been saying, and IMF is saying that this contraction is going to be done because of the expected effects of government reforms. But the IMF hasn't indicated that they're totally against Javier Malay's reform. They haven't. I'm going to be honest. The fund um, said following a recent devaluation um, and the exchange rate realignment, right? So that is that what they're talking about there is Javier Malay raising 
the exchange rate of 400 pesos to $1 to 800 pesos to $1, if you remember that story, mm -hmm. okay? They say the new policies should continue to secure reserve accumulation goals. So this makes sense. The IMF is saying, okay, they're accumulating the dollars that they want to accumulate. By accumulating more dollars, they make the country more stable. They're going to give them more of a uh, uh, better fiscal deficits in the long run. Okay. okay, so the IMF is happy about that. And then according to the latest data reported by the central bank, Argentina's reserve totaled around 200, I'm sorry, $27.6 billion on Wednesday. This is up from um, $25.1 billion at the close of Tuesday. So the That's reserves wild. of these countries of Argentina is growing very fast because of its now cut rate of exchange with the dollar or the peso okay so listen it's going to be a mixed bag i want to see what gets through the legislative chambers and what javier malay is actually allowed to change there's already been massive protests to this from government workers upset that their jobs are going to be cut and the economic damage that it's doing because it is it's going to hurt a lot of people in the short term yeah um it's just so it is so interesting because it's so radical yeah and stark and quick yeah right like the the fallout, the repercussions. I'm so curious, not only economically, but whether the country can really withstand this politically. And it's 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 like it's Thatcherite conservatism in Argentina to the max, mm. right? Like to the max. Yeah, this is absolutely to the max. We're gonna see. Uh, this is a really good example of uh, of just hardcore privatization. Yeah, and what it does. It's a great case study because they're going from from like a fascist like yeah. state owned economy Weird, almost yeah. right. Um, I mean, not quite fascist, at least in some of the ways that fascism is usually Yeah, fascist defined, is the but... wrong word. It's more like Boon, uh, Mussolini corporatism, okay. which is like a, which is technically the uh, the economic policy of fascism, but that's not what everyone thinks about, right? No. Yeah. yeah. So, it, yeah, it'll just be... It's a perfect case study. Yeah. And a quick thing about the, the Mussolini style of corporatism, it's actually kind of similar to what FDR was trying to do in the New Deal. The National Recovery Administration or the National um, Industrial Recovery Administration, the NRA and the NIRA, um, led by Hugh Johnson, that was basically almost Mussolini-styled fascist economic policy. Wow. It was very, very close. It was like, you know, price control boards, government control regulation for each specific industry where companies and the government work together to organize a contract around how the whole industry would operate, an elimination of antitrust laws so that these companies had an incentive to work with the government. Mm. A whole system of, you know, this corporatist structure of government and and uh, the private sector in collaboration. The issue was it didn't really include labor in that picture. Okay. Um, there were labor sections, specifically Section 7A of the National uh, Recovery Administration, actually was the first piece of federal legislation that enshrined the rights of unions to collectively bargain and to collectively organize. That was one of the first things to do that. Okay. But the issue was it had no enforcement teeth. Um, but then, okay. the, sorry, the Wagner Act of 1935, uh, Senator from New York, Senator Wagner, one of the more progressive senators of the 30s, he passes the National Labor Relations Act, making the National Labor Relations Board, which gives Section 7A of the National Recovery Act the teeth it needed. Anyway. Cool. Moving on. Talk about unions. The UAW is on the rise. Okay. The United Auto Workers are on the rise, baby. We saw this past year 
a, a fucking amazing unionization effort yes. and strike with the UAW. They were able to get record wage increases, an end to the tier wage system, or at least a shortening of it. Okay, you only have to work there three years to get to the higher paying jobs in the UAW sector now. You got a, uh, uh, the, re, the, the reinstatement of cost of living adjustments um, and so much more. Come, uh, federal, uh, more holidays even. So a lot of stuff coming out of the UAW contract. Well, now they're expanding their base. And we have word that a majority of the 4,100 workers at the Volkswagen Chattanooga, Tennessee site assembly plan have signed cards to join the union. Huge. 4,100 workers, a majority of them have signed on to join the union. Okay, That's this awesome. is huge. Mm-hmm. This means that when they file um, for an election with the National Labor Relations Board, they will have to have the election. Okay, the 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 company cannot stop them from doing so. Mm-hmm. And the co- and now, because of the Biden administration, if the company does does do something to stop them, the union gets automatically formed due to the Chemex decision. Yep. So the company has no way to really fight back against this. They just have to watch and let it happen. Yeah, and I don't think the company is going to based on how they responded. No, right? the company says. The company respects our workers' right to decide the question of union representation, and we remain committed to providing accurate information that helps them of their rights and choices. Helps them, helps inform them of their rights and choices. Yeah, whatever, what did I say? You just said helps them, you dropped inform. Oh. It's kind of an important word in the sentence. Well, inform, inform by who? <laughs> yeah. But now, so the company is, you know, they're going to have to deal with this. And this has been hard for the UAW to break into the South for generations. Yeah. After the UAW organized Stellantis, um, uh, GM, and Ford, these come, it was Chrysler back in the day before it was Stellantis. But after they organized that, car manufacturers started popping up in the South because they didn't want to have to deal with the UAW. Yeah, a lot of foreign manufacturers, Volkswagen being one of them. Foreign manufacturers is the big one. Yep. Right? Those foreign companies are the one that the UAW has been had trouble breaking into. Mm-hmm. But now it seems like they're going to have another shot. And I say another shot because in 2019, Volkswagen workers at the plant actually rejected union representation in a vote of 833 to 776 wild wild but we're in a different time true 2019 is not 2024 Mm -hmm. totally different era with unions right Mm -hmm. now truly um the uaw in november announced campaigns at 13 non-union automakers this includes tesla toyota hyundai uh, riveran rivian rivian nissan bmw and mercedes-benz okay all of these companies have unionization drives going on in them right now Mm. 13 plants across the country and what's so great is that senators last month actually pressed the lawmakers to remain neutral during all of the organizing efforts fantastic the fact that we have senators being so openly pro-union it just shows a total shift in our political alignment yes yeah the political support for unions is is enormous and is going has i feel like increased the awareness of workers at these plants like you can't have not heard about this if you work in a in a car manufacturer no plant. you know now and volkswagen knows that t- workers are tuning in because volkswagen um last november said it would hike pay for tennessee factory workers by 11 percent um joining other foreign automakers who have announced significant pay increases and the whole reason they're doing these pay increases is because they saw what the uaw did at gm ford and stellantis yeah and they're like oh shit if we don't give our workers the crumbs, they're going to demand the loaf. Yeah, totally. And and now I, I almost think this puts the VW workers in a better position because they are going to go and still negotiate their union contract, which will obviously give them higher rate wages, better job security, better benefits, oh, yeah. better working conditions. So they, what 
Volkswagen probably did is just set a higher baseline that they're working from. Yep. And so now th these workers over in Chattanooga, Tennessee, we encourage you to vote for unionization. Go watch our deep dive about how great unions are, but you don't need to listen to us. Talk to your local UAW representative and they will tell you what the UAW can do for you and your family. So please, if you haven't signed on to join the card, I doubt you're listening to us right now. But if you are, sign that union card and vote yes in your election. Talk to your UAW representative and or local UAW, and they'll tell you why it's so important. Absolutely. Beautiful. Moving on to our deep dive. Deep dive time. So we had a particular impetus to look at the history of tariffs in the U.S. Yes. So first of all, I'll say what tariffs are. I'll talk about what that impetus is. I'll mention it briefly before we go into it more at the end, and then we'll get into that history. So tariffs are taxes on foreign goods. Simple as that. Taxes on imports that are paid by the importers. So we import stuff into America and the company that is buying the thing from a foreign country and importing it pays a tax on that good. All right. The reason that we're looking at this is because recent news has come out about Donald Trump floating a 60% tariff on all Chinese goods. Not six, not 16, 60. Six zero. Six zero. That is ins that is a ridiculously high tariff. Oh, you know what? To give Trump some credit, turns out that was a little bit of a lie. Because the Washington Post interviewed him and they're like, hey, Trump, did you push for a 60% tariff? And he's like, no, I want it to be higher than 60. Yeah. That's what we're dealing with here. So that's we're not talking about tariffs around the edges of 10, 5%. We're talking about a 60, and but he's saying higher than 60% tariff. Yeah. So, but we're we wanna we wanna give it credit. We wanna do our homework and yep. figure out what what tariffs do exactly. What is the history of them? So, we're gonna go through that. What, what are they looking at in America? How did the U.S. use them in the past? Yeah. Well, and I want to start by not even how the U.S. used tariffs, but before the revolution. Hell yeah. How tariffs were wielded against us. Mm. So, the Townshend the Townsend acts um, were responses to the uh to the seven years war so basically the seven years war was fought between britain and france on american soil they were each of them had colonists there and they were fighting for territory that were a little bit west of the british colonies right after the war so so the war goes on for seven years the brits win basically and they are in massive debt that they've used to finance the war and now they need sources of income and they figure, well, let's just put a tax on these colonists. And the first thing they do is the stamp tax, right? And the stamp tax uh, is basically on every publication, every every piece of mail that is sent in the American colonies. That a little bit of that income goes to a percentage of that goes to Great Britain, the the mother country. Americans hated this. Stamp taxes repealed after one year, but they still need a way to extract that money. So they come up with the Townsend Acts, which tax a bunch of different, um, a bunch of goods that Americans can't really make on their own and so that they need to import from Great Britain. Uh, it taxes those imports. It's the first kind of real example of tariffs in the colonies. And besides that, there's the case of exemption of tariffs on tea imports for the East India Trading Company. So this made colonists super mad because this meant the East India Trading Company couldn't be competed with by colonial tea makers. And this is, of course, leads to the Boston Tea Party, leads to the idea of taxation without representation, and is a huge 
reason for the beginning of revolution in and of itself. So the, what this Townsend Act did, it taxed foreign tea, but not British tea. Exactly. Got it. Yes. Right. And a lot of a lot of American founding fathers, I think John Adams was one of them, was actually a smuggler bringing Dutch tea into the U.S. market. Yeah. So that totally fucked him up, which is, and then he, he helped plan the Boston Tea Party. Yes, totally, <laughs> totally. So I, I think that's a good baseline yes. to show the political effects that tariffs can have, and that's going to be a thread that underlies the rest of this long history, okay? So then you get into the Revolutionary War, and during the Revolution, there's a fledgling manufacturing industry that starts to pop up in the U.S. Now, obviously, they were not competing with the Europeans. This is still a, this is not even a country yet. These are just colonies. They're, they've been reliant on getting manufactured goods from the Europeans forever mm -hmm. um but during the war they suddenly had more of a reason to start manufacturing and it wasn't even high level manufacturing they were barely making weapons they were making some but it was lower down on the value chain or it was in other areas like like manufacturing textiles and right. clothing we got they need we, clothes we basically got all of our guns from france totally you know we got almost all of our guns from france we were starting to manufacture steel Right, so that we could at least try to repair some of the weapons that we did have. Cool. Um, but we were extremely high up in the value chain, or like we were far behind the end goods, kind yeah. of. Uh, then after the war, we still couldn't compete with European manufacturing at all, right? Which meant that this fledgling industry in the U.S. was highly at risk. Yeah, it had no way to start up. They can't compete with the economies of scale that exist in Britain, Germany, and their textile manufacturing. Exactly. And it got even worse because Britain passed the Navigation Acts, which impose really high prices on American shipments coming into Britain. Mm -hmm. So Britain is putting its own protectionist policies so that they can't be competed with via the Americans. Meanwhile, they're easily outcompeting the Americans on American soil, right? Also, none of the other European powers wanted to agree on fair trade deals. The Americans were just in a really bad negotiating position as far as making trade agreements. So um, even though, and instantly, right, the, the Continental Congress, which is the central government that forms in America after the revolution, but before the constitution is signed, they want to institute tariffs. They see what's happening, but they were really weak. The state still had most of the power in this young post-revolutionary America, and the states did not want to give the central government the right to regulate commerce because that's what had just happened with Britain. Yep. And that was what was just caused their problems that led to the revolution. So instead, the individual states decided to impose their own tariffs. But that just caused a race to the bottom, right, for the European traders. And they just shipped all their goods into whatever state they could get them to with the least amount of taxes. And so now you have these interstate, like, commerce wars, these trade wars that are happening where they're placing tariffs not only on each other, but they're like changing tariffs on different European powers to try to extract goods from those Europeans. The early American government is, it hates this, right? They can't, they, they need more unity. They need more federal power so that they don't have so, they don't have so much internal discord as far as their, their economics. Mm -hmm. So the Constitution finally comes in. The Constitution is passed. It's signed. It's ratified in 1789. And one of the first, the first order of business is like, let's give the central government some power to regulate commerce. 
and they see, they seek to aid manufacturers. Basically, they need two things. Okay, they need income. Yeah. They have a bunch of debt after fighting the Revolutionary War, and they need a way to pay it off. And two, they need to protect manufacturing, as we just talked about. So they come up with the first Tariff Act. The Tariff Act of 1789 is actually the second piece of legislation that George Washington signs as the first president of the U.S. That's cool. Um, it had two purposes. The two purposes that we just talked about, protect manufacturing, raise revenue for the government. Yep. Um this is some very Alexander Hamilton type policy. Yeah, right Hamilton was all about it. Yeah. It was he he wanted to increase the country's unity, protect manufacturing. The thing is, the tariffs were too low to actually work for protectionist purposes. They were only around like five percent for most things. They were higher on some of the goods that the U.S. produced, like steel and tobacco, but they still weren't high enough. Mm-hmm. What they were high enough for was revenue. There were some years after 1789. That the tariffs provided like 95% of the government's revenue. That's crazy, yeah. The Isn't government that, didn't used to raise that much money. No, no. Um, it, it was raising less than $10 million a year. Yeah. Like, it was very, very little. Um, so tariffs go on. And then the next time we get a tariff act is 1816. So eighteen, we, have, we actually have a very similar position post-Revolutionary War. Because instead it was post the War of 1812, mm-hmm. which was against the UK. And during the War of 1812, again, they needed to raise money to fund the war. They doubled the tariff rates from 1789. Uh, but after the war, the government was still in serious debt. So what it did was, even though it lowered those tariffs during the war, it increased tariffs on some goods that, would that again, they wanted to protect, right? Because... They're, they were in a position where the British could attack some of the most vulnerable but most important industries in the country, which at this time was still manufacturing, and in this case was textiles. And I, I want to focus in on that. Yeah. Because textiles is an industry that does really well in southern Germany. Silesia, the Silesian region of Germany, is like the textile capital of the world. Hmm. UK, incredible at producing textiles. Extremely, extremely profitable. If the U.S. wants to get into this market— it needs a way to compete, and it needs to shut out those foreign competitors. Yeah. But what's interesting about textiles is they're kind of like a finished product. They're not input goods at this point, mm-hmm. right? A textile manufacturing plant is producing the textiles. Yes, it goes on to make, excuse me, goes on to create, you know, whatever, clothes and stuff. But this textile thing is imperative for the United States to be able to produce at home. Definitely. Yeah. And so it, it did work in that some of the British, like, coarse textiles that the British exporters really dominated were blocked out of the market and it did help the American manufacturers. But besides textiles, the Brits still dumped a ton of cheap goods onto the American market and it did severely hurt manufacturers. Um, However, the tariff was effective in raising revenue from the government. Uh, Then you go a few years after 1816 and in 1819, there is a panic and an economic depression, and suddenly tariff policy is called into question, right? Tariffs had been such an enormous source of revenue for the government that it was an obvious thing to look at and wonder, is this the thing hurting our economy? And so for the next, say, 80 years of the 1800s, tariffs are like this are completely central to the political conversation. Um, we have a lot of, I'll, I'll go through a lot of the details, but... Uh, you have in, in the 1820s, you have many Americans thinking they're essential to the country's independence and stability. And so you 
honestly, when we when economists look back on it, they don't think tariffs actually had that big of an impact. Yeah. Because they tried low tariffs in times of recession and it didn't necessarily help. They tried high tariffs in times of prosperity and recession. It didn't necessarily help. Recessions came whether tariffs were low or high. And it turns out the idea kind of is that America's economy was too unique, too complex and differentiated for tariffs on these individual goods to really make that much of a difference. Um, so we skip forward to 1824 and we see the tariff, the first tariff that is used purely for protectionism. So this one wasn't worried about revenue for the government. Uh, it was about protecting northern manufacturers, right? This is this is where, 1824? Yeah. Okay. So this is where the country is kind of splitting as far as the economy, right? The south is concentrated on cotton production, whereas the north is starting to get into manufacturing. A lot of the north is still farming, but about 20% of the north is now working on manufacturing. Mm-hmm. And that seems like a really important sector of the economy to keep safe. And that is going to kind of... It, it, they're looking at that like the future, and they will, it's kind of how we think about chips now, right? Like you need some of that to be domestic so that your national security is going to remain intact. Yeah. Um, so Southerners opposed it because they were net consumers yeah. of those manufactured goods, while Northerners supported it because it strengthened their own industrial base. And that is the context that we found ourselves in for the next around a century. Mm-hmm. Southerners were anti-tariffs because they consumed the manufactured goods. Northerners were pro-tariff because they produced the goods and they wanted to protect the workers. And I'll add this, throughout this time, there's whole bunches of calls of corruption, of like, you're doing this because your buddy who owns the textile mill is getting you rich on the back end. And lobbying becomes very, very powerful with tariffs. Yeah. Tariffs and tariff, setting the tariff levels are huge in the later 19th century. Yeah. And it's all, it's where lobbying comes from, guys. It's like, literally, this tariff policy is how people started buying off government government employees yeah. and government not government employees government elected officials you know and um it, it's just a whole I actually have a book on the shelf here called private power and american democracy the first three chapters are dedicated to the tariff wars mm. and how tariffs were fought over in the halls of congress specifically by huge um uh, manufacturing companies it is the tool of special interest and in, in thinking about it like it does seem it's it is kind of hard to defend in my opinion, right? Yeah. And so neoliberalism, which we did a deep dive on, I think also one of our better ones. So good. Um, neoliberalism is all about free international trade. Tariffs are the clear obstacle, antithesis, antithesis to it. Um, and when I think about this, and I think about how special interests use tariffs to protect themselves, it's really hard for me to think of like not... of. of putting tariffs on certain goods, but not others, Mm -hmm. right? It's hard to validate the case that only some manufacturing or only some jobs are worth protecting a certain amount. It's hard to to politically support that and to hear that as someone who's manufacturing some of these goods that aren't worth protecting apparently, right? So that's where the, the Southerners were coming from. And then in 1828... Ooh. This is this got crazy. This is so, a big one. So Southerners in Congress, again, South doesn't like tariffs, North likes tariffs. Southerners in Congress craft a tariff bill that would also be imposed on goods that the northern states imported abundantly. So the idea was like the okay, if the North is gonna Im- 
put tariffs on us to try to protect themselves. We're going to retaliate by putting tariffs on them and making it harder for them. And the Southern congressman expected that the Northern congressman would oppose the bill because of this. And then they could withdraw it while blaming the Northerners to consolidate support from for Andrew Jackson. So, so they, they, I'm trying to like put this into plainer English. This is a crazy 4D chess move. Yeah, it is. It's wild. They they submit a bill that they don't like, but they think that the bill won't be will be disliked equally by their northern counterparts. Um, however, tariffs are still enjoyed in the north, so they think that by putting a bill out with tariffs and then having the northern congressman reject it, they can they can make point the finger at the northern congressman make them look like the bad guy for rejecting the bill and getting rid of the tariffs that are supposed to protect the northern manufacturers yeah except they were wrong that the northerners would withdraw the bill and it, it turns out that as long as the tariffs as long as the bill included the tariffs that the northerners wanted they were okay with having the tariffs that hurt them as well so the northerners signed on to the bill and thus was born the tariffs of abominations so it was a tariff that was across the board it was on everything because that's why that's how the southerners thought that it would be rejected is by making it on everything and then it just passed anyways and so the tariff of abominations it it hurts the economy but again like we talked about before it's more of a political issue it only hurts the economy in the south where they're net consumers yeah because it really does help it helps a lot with the northern economy that they're they're not relying on you know foreign they're not competing with foreign imports as heavily so now you have these northern manufacturing bases that are selling you know more expensive goods to the south when the south used to be getting cheaper goods from the foreign countries mm -hmm. or you know um getting you know whatever cheaper goods from the north and the north is still hurt because like yes. relatively it's it's helped on net but it has hurt somewhat because of the tariffs in the bill for northern goods sure northern imports gotcha um and so the tariff is like the leading issue in the 1828 election, which pits John Quincy Adams against Andrew Jackson, and it helps Andrew Jackson defeat John Quincy Adams. So even though the Congress, the Southern congressmen were hoping to use the rejection of the bill to blame the Northern congressmen and consolidate support for Jackson, the fact that it passed and that it passed under the, um, the leadership and the presidency of John Quincy Adams was enough to give Jackson the momentum to take the presidency. Mm -hmm. In 1832, you get another change of the tariffs. It's it's just a slight change, though. Um, the political tensions were really coming to a boil because of fury in the South yeah. from these artificially priced goods. And then Congressman Henry Clay came up with a proposal that really cooled the jets a little Before bit. Before we get to that, yeah. this is when South Carolina says, we're not abiding by your tariff. Correct. Car North South Carolina was like, we're done. This is what's called the nullification crisis, right? So this is like, South Carolina is almost threatening to secede. Not technically, but they're saying, we're not abiding by the supremacy clause of the Constitution. Yeah. We're out. Mm -hmm. We're not. We're no longer playing your game. You guys suck. I'm taking my ball and I'm going home. Yeah. Yeah. They're like, okay, you can have your law, but we're not following it here. Yes. So yeah. then Jackson has to really, really get down here until henry clay yeah well jackson threatens war yeah against south carolina that's <laughs> crazy intense it's crazy um and then henry clay comes in he's he's a good enough diplomat that he finds a way to ease the tension 
He comes up with this proposal to slowly lower the tariffs over the course of 10 years, right? So this is perfect because it gives northern manufacturers enough time to build up their industrial capacity and it soothes the anxieties of the southerners. It's called the compromise tariff. Um, so again, this is, it just, it just screams how much of a political tool tariffs are, right? And yeah. we need to keep that in mind as we're remembering that we're going to fast forward to the modern day. Yes. Try to analyze what Trump's tariff proposition might do. And I want to just call out Henry Clay, best president we never had. You got stolen from you, buddy. You should have been president. Okay, so the compromise tariff happens. Uh, we see the political power of it. And so tariffs continue to go up and down throughout the time leading up to the Civil War after 1832. And even further than that, even up to like 18 or 1909, coming up before World War One. So during the Civil War, tariffs are used to raise some money for the Union. But honestly, it's not nearly as much as bond, war bonds or loans. It's another source of income, but it's still mostly a political tool. And our context, again, we have Democrats from the South that want them lower. We have Republicans from the North that want them higher. Mm. This kind of starts to get confusing to me because... We're about to pivot the alignment of Democrats and Republicans. The, I'm going to try to keep that in my head. The, the, the pivot begins in 1896 with William uh, William Henry Bryant's first or first run for office. That's like the first thing against McKinley in 1896. And then the party really gets switched in like 1936 FDR. Okay. Not the first 1932 election of FDR, the 1936 election. That's okay. when he cements the black vote. But anyway. Okay. Okay. Um, well, actually, this, this is important because then— Leading up to World War One, tariffs are kind of the one thing that is cementing the Republican Party together. Mm. Like, this is the clearest identity. Think with Democrats now. I'm not sure if this is the best thing to say, but high taxes on the rich. Yeah. Right? If that's the obvious cement, at least economically, of the Democratic Party today, it was tariffs for the Republican Party in this, in the early 20th century. Democrats, on the other hand, they call it a tax on the little man, right? Yeah. It's like, oh, you're making all these goods more expensive and making it harder for everyone to live. Um, the next important tariff, right, we, we get to, there. there's another tariff passed by Henry Taft, by How, Henry Taft? Howard, Howard Taft. Howard Taft in 1909, but it doesn't really change the framework of anything, Yeah, which means we actually get to smoot Hawley. But, but I want to emphasize, during, after this World War One or before that World War One era, right, so like pre- Post-Civil War, pre-World War One, the whole world enters a time of global bliss. Mm. It is a time of global peace, of free trade, of every of a cosmopolitan world. Mm. The 1900s was an incredibly peaceful time, and you never wouldn't have known that only 14 years later it would all go up in flames. But like the interconnectivity uh, between nations and their economies in 1900s was incredibly interlinked, incredibly tight. Wow. And all that's going to come crashing down after World War One, And then in 1918, we get the buildup of nationalism. We get the, that buildup. Well, 1914 is obviously the buildup of nationalism. But really, 1918, now nations are protecting themselves. Mm. They're less reliant on each other. They don't trust each other as much. That France wants to outcompete Germany. Germany is angry. Britain is scared. All these countries, they want to build up their own base. Mm. And so now we start seeing tariffs come back into fashion. And when the recession hits in 1929... The United States thinks we need a way to spur our manufacturing here at home. Mm -hmm. 
What's the best way to do that? By locking out all foreign competitors with high tariffs and only allowing or only putting or only making it possible for U.S. consumers to buy U.S. manufactured goods. And then this is when they passed the Smoot-Harley tariff. And so what are their reasons? So the after the Depression, uh, who, who's in office? Woodrow Wilson. This no. is still Hoover in 1930. Hoover, Herbert Hoover. Herbert Hoover is, he's thinking, we need to protect american farmers from competition and american manufacturers from competition to me this makes honestly this makes very little sense because it was a global downfall yeah it was a global downfall you needed more circulation of goods right but that's not what he did he he thought american farmers needed to be protected um and so he puts tariffs on europeans he puts tariffs on canada and they retaliate right they They retaliate of their own they retaliate Hard. Yes. And these this before we even get to that retaliation part, okay. economists were begging Hoover Hoover not to do this. Mm. 1,028 economists in the United States wrote a letter to uh, Herbert Hoover at the time in May 1930 and actually begged him, like, please do not do this. Mm. Henry Ford and J.P. Morgan also went up to Herbert Hoover and they were like, please don't do this. Okay. Oh. So... We have, then we get into this retaliation, and all these exa- economists and and uh, J.P. Morgan and Henry Ford. Um, I'm not going to side with J.P. Morgan or Henry Ford on pretty much anything, but they knew that this was just going to cause a retaliatory strike. Mm-hmm. And if we look at the vote of a map of the senators who voted for the Smoot-Harley tariff and who voted against, you can very clearly see the lines between North and South. Yeah, it's obvious. Yeah, the biggest support again, the biggest support for came from states like Michigan, Ohio, Indiana, Massachusetts. The biggest against were coming from South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Virginia, Texas. These are the states that are super against this tariff. Mm-hmm. Okay, so not all countries did retaliate, and it's important to mention that. But a lot did. And we can actually see how American exports differentiated between those who retaliated and those who didn't. Okay, so in America, American exports to countries that did not retaliate dropped by 18 percent. But exports to countries that did retaliate dropped 31 percent. So this is showing the difference in tariffs and what they do to international flow of goods, right? Mm -hmm. This is lessening the volatility of capital, of goods, of manufacturing. It's it's making the economy at least a little bit slower. At least. At least. And probably, and sometimes much slower. Right, and sometimes much slower. It's a little up in the air how much, like, uh, uh, negativity goes on to the Smoot-Harley tariff, and we'll get into that. But I want to shout out FDR. FDR actually ran against the Smoot-Harley tariffs in his election cycle in 1932, mm-hmm. which makes sense from him being a Democrat. Yep. makes sense of him, like, you know, not being from the South, but people always say he has the whole of a Southern man, a soul of a Southern man. People okay. always would say that about him. Okay. He was the governor of New York. But this is what I'm saying here. FDR comes in running against this tariff. And in 1934, he actually uh, succeeds in um, dropping the tariff. Okay. Um, and he works with Congress to pass a law that allows the executive branch the power to bilaterally negotiate trade agreements with other governments and then mm. be able to pass these negotiations through Congress with a simple with a with a majority support instead of the normal two thirds support that it would take for a treaty ratification. Okay. So now he's making it easier to negotiate with international uh, with, with the international community. This is putting a lot of power in the executive branch, which gives Trump the authority to do stuff like this. It goes all the way back to 1934, which which Trump even has the power to pass these types of tariffs. It all stems back from this. But now, 
Let's get into the economics of it, okay? So no economist directly claims that Smoot-Harley caused the depression. That is a bogus lie. Um, it, the economy crashed in 1929, not in 1930. So that's already pretty wrong, mm -hmm. okay? Now, imports at this time only formed about 6% of the gross national product of the United States. So only 6% of the U.S. gross national product was coming from exports. Mm -hmm. So this means with average tariff rates ranging from 40 to 60%, sources of this actually vary. We're not actually totally sure about the direct percentages of what the effective tax rates were in a lot of these cases. But this represents an effective tax of merely 2.4 to 3.6% of the entire economy. Yeah. I mean, it's just not that big of a deal. Yeah. The and the global of the economy contracted by 17% yeah. of GDP, right? So we're, we're talking even... about just slivers of Well, in the U.S. specifically, loss. we dropped 31% of GNP. Okay. Yeah, I mean, the U.S. was just decimated. So we're talking about 24 to 3.6% of the GNP being affected. It's very little. It's just, it's just not, a, it's just not yeah. a lot. So it does, it does kind of show like tariffs, again, we're, we keep coming back. Economically, tariffs don't seem to do that much. Unless... You are a net consumer, like the South was. Mm. If you're a net consumer, it's going to be a different story. If the U.S. had 40% of their of their economy, of 40% of their GNP being ex imports, mm. it would be a different story. True. Okay. Right? So do, do you know of any countries that are that way now? Uh, I'm pretty sure Argentina is a net importer. Okay. Okay. Uh, so basically, if you're if you're importing a lot and you're making it harder for yourself to import all that stuff, it's going to hurt. Yeah. Yeah. Who would have thought? Yeah, that, that makes sense. That yeah, makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So so Smoot-Hawley is probably the most famous tariff of all time, right? Yeah. But that's not the end of the story, right? We have World War II and a bunch of time after that. And uh, between the Great Depression and the 70s, as neoliberalism takes hold, the consensus kind of shifts to low or no tariffs and free trade, uh, which again, based on what we're talking about here, I don't. I can't find a way to really take a stand against. Yeah, I don't, most of the there, time there isn't too much, unless you're an importing nation where you're importing forty percent of your stuff. Yeah, it's not really the right move. No, no, it doesn't seem to be that way. Uh, but then in the seventies, you do have another uh, another situation where it seems like tariffs might be more useful. Manufacturing in the Sun Belt gets hit hard by foreign competition, right? by foreign car makers, foreign steel makers, textile manufacturers, that like heavier manufacturing and textiles, exactly what we've been talking about since the beginning of this conversation. And so the the unions that are formed around these, specifically the UAW, yep. is a huge supporter of tariffs to prevent the imports of foreign cars. Uh, they, I don't think they actually get any pass, but it just becomes a bigger part of the political conversation. Mm -hmm. Tariffs since, I haven't been a huge deal since Donald Trump. Trump kind of brings them back into yes. fruition here. Yeah. Um, and he during his time in office, he puts tariffs on Chinese goods. He puts tariffs on aluminum imports from Canada. He puts tariffs on steel. Um, and the, ec the economic impacts of this are pretty clear. Yeah. The economic impact is bad. And it's bad, especially the imports of steel and uh, the tariffs on steel and aluminum. Those were bad policies. Pretty much every economist agrees. You're not going to find anyone who supports them. Mm. You'll, find, you'll find workers who do, though. And the workers in these steel plants are very happy that Trump put those tariffs on. The yeah. workers in those aluminum plants and the business owners of those aluminum plants and those steel plants 
they're very happy with Trump putting those tariffs on. Mm-hmm. And so it makes it a pretty hard dichotomy because now you're, uh, you know, you're definitely picking winners and losers with the tariff policy. You're choosing to benefit the steel worker over the American consumer. Now, there are other things that I... One of the big things that I hate about tariffs, and I'm going to repeat this over and over again on the show, is I'm against tariffs on input products, okay? When we're talking about things that are used to make other things, mm. that is the worst thing that we could tariff, okay? Because sure. what we want to be making is the highest value thing, which is at the end of the value chain. Yep. We don't want to be focused on the lower quality stuff and the lower tier stuff. We don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. That's the that's where the bullshit jobs are. Yeah. Right? We don't want to make it more difficult to get our manufactured products and our finished goods. Yeah. We want to make those as cheap as possible. Mm-hmm. So these input goods are it's just not the way to go by tariffing them. Yeah. Yeah. At and least so, I don't think so. So then no, I think I agree. So then the only question remains what about tariffing finished goods? Right. Right? Like say we get washing machines from China. Mm-hmm. And then it starts to you start to think, well, what if we're getting washing from machines from China, washing machines aren't that crazy to make somewhere else, mm-hmm. like Mexico, mm-hmm. right? So, and no, but more importantly, like why can't we get washing machines from China? Yeah, and it ends up you end up realizing that it's more just that we're generally trying to attack China. With yes, these it becomes it becomes a weapon, and that's what it really is. Trump's tariff policy shouldn't be looked at as an economic policy. No, it shouldn't even be looked at. In the vein of like uh, domestic expansion, to be honest, it should really be looked at attacking China. Yes, because this Chinese manufacturing is not just going to come back to the U.S. It's going to go to the Philippines. It's going to go to Vietnam. Vietnam, Mexico, and other countries that have a similarly skilled and populous workforce, right? Yeah. So with lax labor laws. Yeah, we're not we're not talking. I mean, the, okay, there there are some exceptions because I do want to give credit, right? EVs. Sure. A tariff on Chinese EVs is going to help manufacturing that is popping up in the U.S. But why? Because it's a high-value, yes. ma- finished, manufactured product, right? Yes. It's super high on the value chain, so mm-hmm. other countries couldn't pick that up. Only the U.S. could pick that up. I mean, other countries could. There, there's talk of like EV manufacturing plants popping up in Mexico, but there's a... Yes, but that'll be using U.S. capital. But yes, I know what you mean. Yeah, and there's there's an interest in having this be completely controlled within our country. Yeah, yeah, About yeah. us never having to worry about losing that capacity. Yep, yep, yep. Same thing with solar panels. Yep. And that's why the IRA, with the tax credits in the Inflation Reduction Act, specifically encouraging U.S. investments, you know. Yes, but we've talked about this before, too. Like, the only reason to worry about... like. Like, why would China stop selling us those? Why would China stop selling us their EVs no or their idea. solar panels? They they have the manufacturing capacity. They have the infrastructure built up to make all of these things. And those technologies, just like we talked about with Europe and China earlier in this episode, those technologies are essential in fighting this larger battle against climate change, yep. right? And so the only reason not to do so we have these pros of taking these cheap goods from China. The reason not to do so is to try to hurt China, to try to hurt their economy. And so we have to ask the question, is that worth it? We've talked about the specific goods, but let's get into the conversation about the policy that Trump has raised. Yes. A tariff on everything. Everything. The only way you can look at that is as a weapon, as an attack on China, as a way to take the legs out from its economy. And 
China is our adversary. We've talked about this many times in the show. China is not a trustworthy actor. They don't behave well in the South China Sea. They bully the countries around them. Damn. But is it worth it? Or is it a good thing to do? Is it even good for the U.S.? To completely cripple their economy. Is it good for the U.S. to cripple China? I think the answer is no. I agree. Um, I think we need China to, you know, contract slowly. We don't want them to start contracting so fast that they get scared in some ethno-nationalist spur and invade Taiwan really hastily, right? We don't want them to collapse so hard that millions starve because of lack of food and whatever with their economy shrinking. We don't want that. No. Right? We just, we, we want them to either become a trustworthy actor or, you know, recede in the international stage. And the truth is, time's on the U.S.'s side. Yes. China is not going to be around for very long as a long-term international powerhouse. They're just not. They don't have the population to do so. No. Which sounds crazy because we're talking about China. But if you listen to our Chinese deep dives and our talks about Chinese depopulation, you know that China has about a decade left. Yeah, exactly. And so so what you're doing is you're trying to cripple this economy, which I'm expecting, again, is for political reasons because people are going to see it and they're going to say, Trump's tough on China. Yeah. And again, that's I want to emphasize, it's bad on our economy too. Yes. It's, it's going to be bad on us. And that's the thing. It, it's... It's going to be only good for political reasons. Meanwhile, it's going to spike inflation here because we still import a massive yeah. amount of goods from China. Yes. And while in short time that capacity will be built up elsewhere, it's going to take some time. So you're, we're going to see another year, maybe two years of spiked inflation because of these enormous and ridiculous and unnecessary tariffs on China just for these political purposes. And take him at his word. He wants a 60% plus tariff on Chinese goods. That's scary. No. That's dangerous. Yeah. That's not good. It's just not good for really anyone involved. No. So. But that's the history of tariffs. That was awesome. Yeah, I like that. That was a great, that was a, it was like a very interesting lens to look at the United States history through, right? Yeah. You know, that's one of my favorite things about history is, you know, every book you read, right? It's like. Each, each way history is told is it's almost the same story, right? How many times can you read about, you know, the New Deal? But if you read Lyndon Johnson, The Path to Power by Robert Caro, you read about the New Deal through the eyes of a congressional backbencher who's trying to make his way through Congress. If you read, you know, um, the Too Big to Fail, you learn about the 2008 financial crisis through the eyes of the Lehman Brothers executives. Mm-hmm. And you see these different lenses. And right now we walk through the history of the United States through the lens of tariffs and how it affected everything so hope you learned all right hope so bye guys bye